0: the Dairy Dialogue podcast and it's number 142 as we hit the middle of July and my hay fever hits never before experienced heights of irritation. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter and I'm hoping to get through all of this with a minimum of disruption from sneezing, school holidays, the mail and a noisy dog. Our walk this week took us to the coastal town of Burnt Island, which had a huge fair on, so the place was teeming with people, not bothering to social distance, or not wearing masks. Everyone seemed to be from England, so the concept of walking to get away from it all pretty much backfired. And it was hot for Scotland, so that seemed to bring everyone out as well. Every 30 seconds on the trail we were also moving over for cyclists and none of them even bothered to say thank you. Oh well, this weekend I'll have to find somewhere way more remote. Preferably without pollen. To keep my son busy while I work, which he still doesn't seem to really understand, I got him a jigsaw puzzle of a map of Europe, seeing as he loves maps so much. Of course, about five minutes after he got it out, the dog ran off with two pieces, and by the time they were retrieved, Cyprus and a part of Sweden were looking in a very bad way. It's funny, when I was younger, we'd often do jigsaw puzzles that we'd buy from the charity shop or the thrift store, and I'd wonder why some of them had missing pieces. How do you lose pieces? Well, now I know. Dogs prefer them to food. Maybe there's a new product launch in there somewhere. Speaking of new products, I can't even begin to tell you how many press releases I've got in the last week or so about avocado month. Would you be interested in running some avocado recipes? Would you like to carry this article on avocado growing? Well, no, it's called Dairy Reporter for a reason. It's not avocado news. Actually, if I replied to every press release I got that wasn't related to dairy or dairy alternatives, that's pretty much all I'd do. I even got one recently that said that the press release couldn't be sent yet because it was embargoed, and the next day I got a follow-up email to ask if I was going to be using it. It's funny how a few weeks ago I had a load of interviews in hand for future weeks and how quickly they all get used up, so I'm back to square one again. It don't come easy, as Ringo said way back in 1970. And before the emails come in, I know it was released in 1971, but it was recorded in 1970, so that's when he sang it. Speaking of interviews, I should let you know who we have on the show this week. We have conversations with Oscar Zolman-Thomas, who is Formo's Lead Researcher, Sumati Manjonat, Digital Infrastructure and Sustainability Director at Danone Specialized Nutrition, and PACOR CEO Andreas Schutter. And of course we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. And that all means it's time for our weekly roundup of the news that you may have missed. Before I do that, though, I should squeeze in a plug for the upcoming webinar on Dairy Reporter, which is live on July the 29th at 3 p.m. UK, 4 p.m. in Western Europe, 10 a.m. Eastern or 11.30 in Newfoundland. I have a hard enough time with the time zones, let alone half an hour differences. Registration is free and it's going really well so far, so I hope you will join us. Just head on over to the website dairyreporter.com and you should see the link. Anyway, on to the news. The EMB says a new study shows farmers are earning low or no income. GEA has developed a serum separator for the Indian cooperative Amul to reduce losses in ghee production. And Welcome Dairy Holdings has acquired the spray drying company North Star Processing. The Canadian government has given out funding to three dairy processors in Quebec. Penn Collar is looking to expand in the Asian market and Titan Lyle is to reposition and sell a controlling stake in its primary products business. Instacart has revealed the top ice cream flavor in each US state and we had a preview of Pack Expo which is taking place in September. GNT has launched two new green expiry food colors. Tate and Lyle has introduced a Stevia sustainability program, and Kerry has completed the acquisition of BioSearch Life. You can read all of these and many more at dairyreporter.com. So let's get to this week's guests. First, we will hear about Danone's specialized nutrition plant in Brazil. It produces milk formula and medical nutrition products, and it's the company's first production site in the world to meet its sustainability goals across three environmental areas of carbon, water, and waste. To tell us all about it is Sumati Manjunat, Digital Infrastructure and Sustainability Director at Danon Specialized Nutrition. So I wonder if you could start with um, a bit of a history of the site in Brazil and what other facilities you have both in Brazil and in the Latin American region?
1: Sure. So in Brazil, we are present since the 1970s. Actually, we employ about 4,500 people across the country, and we have four supply points or manufacturing factories. We also have a sales unit, of course. Posos de Caladas, that is uh, the one that we are discussing today, is one of them, and it's actually a recent one. It was opened in 2016. And the plant produces baby formula products, brands like Aptomel, Aptanutri, Milupa, etc., and also medical nutrition products like uh, Nutri Drink, uh, Diasep, Fortifit, for both the Brazil and Argentinian markets.
0: And uh, as you mentioned, this is, we we're talking about the specific site today that's just got some certification for its sustainability. Um, how long has that process taken?
1: Well, the journey began in 2018, so it's been about two plus years. The vision and the commitment to become carbon neutral was taken by the plant uh, in 2018 to become a carbon neutral, zero waste uh, production site and significantly also reduce our water consumption. The overall project has taken us less than two years to fully implement from the solar panel covered car park. We had to construct the solar panels uh, on the car park, the waste generation facilities and the state of the art rainwater harvesting and water treatment system, which is through which we uh, reduce our dependency on external source of water. For the past three months, we have been working with Carbon Trust, that is the certifying agency. To secure the comprehensive certifications in accordance with their standards uh, for carbon neutrality, water reduction, and zero waste to landfill. So we announced the certification of our post the site uh, on the 6th of July, which was uh, realized in July 2021, via the triple certification by Carbon Trust.
0: What other steps did you have to take to get to this point? I mean, what does the process involve?
1: The plant got really inspired by Danone's One Planet, One Health frame Faction. This is our, you know, let's say, motto of inspiration across the world. And the local team really shaped the vision for the site. So when we go through our factory strategic plan, which is wherein we put the next three to five years plan, uh, and the factory was very clear and primarily driven by the people in the site, uh, they not only want to reduce, but to have a positive impact on the planet and help the team also to set clear goals around the three pillars of uh, carbon, water and waste. So while this specific journey started at the end of 2018, Danone has had sustainability at its core since day one. So it's reflected in our investment into local communities, the commitment of our employees, and also the collaboration with our partners uh, which you will see is also a part of uh, what we've done here. Over the years, Brazil uh, and Danone Brazil has worked hard to ensure that the plant invested significantly in developing the site where we produce a specialized nutrition state-of-the-art uh, production facility which includes the new production line which includes the recent investment in renewable electricity the industrialization of our solar panels which I just mentioned almost uh, 1500 solar panels were installed and the rainwater harvesting and uh, waste management facilities which also includes a way bridge you know to actually calculate the weight of waste going out of the factory so this was done thanks to the collaboration between the local employees, uh, the partners and the passion to ensure that we reduce our environmental impact. And honestly, nothing can be done if the people are not uh, part of this process. And it's embedded into the heart of everybody who works in that plant. So big kudos to the team over there who made this happen.
0: And what would you say are the highlights of the certification and the features of the plant that allow for that certification?
1: So if I go one by one on the carbon neutrality, like I said just now, the power generated is through 1500 newly installed solar panels and with any additional electricity needed drawn from 100 percent renewable sources. So this has helped the production side to reduce its energy related carbon emission by almost 90% since 2018. We will continue to reduce our carbon emissions across our entire value chain as uh, you know that is key. The remaining carbon emissions, including those resulting from uh, employee commutes, et cetera, are addressed through a partnership with Biophilica, which is a local forest conservation partner When you go into uh, the water consumption, the plant has reduced its water consumption via implementation of a water program and policies, including the installation of a state-of-the-art rainwater collection and uh, treatment uh, system so it consists in collecting and using only water that nature provides within the factory walls, that is within the boundaries of the factory and uh, it enables the plant to not extract a single drop of water from uh, the soil or the river and be completely self-sufficient with regards to its water consumption. As a result, the site is, uh, like I said, fully self-sufficient and the needs of the fire site are fully met by harvesting rainwater. It's a thing that around 4 million liters per year. And that's more than enough on the manufacturing site. And lastly, when it comes to zero waste to landfill, becoming zero waste to landfill means uh, taking actions to progressively reduce uh, waste production to a point that the site no longer sends waste to landfill. So 100% of the plant's uh, remaining waste, like once you have reduced, then there's still some, uh, you keep on reducing, but then there is still some remaining waste. These waste streams are either recycled or recovered and after the known initiated a program of uh, waste segregation, food waste recovery, and also energy recovery from non-recoverable waste. so we have installed a truck weighing station to commercialize the plant's uh, remaining waste.
0: and does the certification just apply to the facility or does it take into account things like transportation of milk to the plant and does it include packaging and and if not, then how are you addressing? some of those other issues?
1: As you know, Danone has committed to become a carbon neutral company by 2050. So in line with our goals towards zero net carbon, we act every day all along the value chain. So whether it is uh, with our suppliers, with our farmers or our production sites. So this is led by our example of regenerative agriculture program and how we are protecting watersheds where we operate. This certification for this particular site is for what happens within the boundaries of the production site. And it is aligned with the standards of Carbon Trust Certifying Agency. So here we are only talking about the production site, so zero carbon facility as such. But like I said, our ambition, our intention is to reduce carbon all along our, our value chain. And if we truly want to become a zero carbon company by 2050, that's the only direction we can go.
0: And how involved were the employees at the plant in the journey to where you've got to so far? Because I know when I spoke to the people in Ireland about their facility, they were very involved in not only the certification, but in the direction that the company was taking.
1: Absolutely. And that's true even in POSUS. The energy and the motivation of the people on the ground is what made us reach where we are. As I said, in 2018, when we sat down to put this uh, factory strategic plan together, and one of the key pillars on that is environment. And when we were uh, discussing with the local team there as to where they want to get there, it was very clear in their head that the one planet, one health, what we stand for, they produce specialized nutrition products, which are for the health of the people. And if we do not get to the health of the planet at the same time makes no meaning and uh, that's where the passion of the local team came into and they were very clear they want to get there and to be honest uh, you know due to the COVID times I was unfortunately not able to visit there and be with the side during this wonderful achievement that they've had but trust me the guys were so happy that they gave me a virtual tour so using digital i was able to actually see the entire plant see the solar panels see the water uh, tanks etc and it was an amazing experience and not only the plant but the passion has also led the danone brazil as a operating unit to become the first large food and beverage company in brazil to join the b corp certification in march 2021 this achievement is also aligned with our ambition to become a b corp certified company globally uh, and in With that long term commitment to sustainable business.
0: And so, obviously, when you get the certification, you mentioned the 2050 goals, you can't just stop there. Do you have to go through periodic recertification? And what steps will you be taking to make things better?
1: Yes, we need to certify every year and every pillar. So every year, the carbon goes through the certification process, the water, as well as the waste. So we need to recertify all the three pillars on a yearly basis.
0: And how does what's happening at that facility in Brazil fit in with the overall program in the region and also globally?
1: Well, this achievement is really exciting for us, as it's the first time that a production site in Danone is actually being certified by our carbon trust for three key environmental goals. and. Like I said, this is not the final destination. If we want to go towards becoming a carbon neutral company, this is not just one site, but we have to embrace this in every site, in every location all around the globe where we operate. And Danone operates globally globally, in all geographies and is aiming for all electricity, for example, of its production sites to come from renewable sources by 2030 and all sites to become zero waste uh, to landfill in line with our One Planet, One Health frame of action. And as part of our company journey to zero net carbon emissions, by 2050, all the Danone's production sites will rapidly decarbonize their operations. And ultimately, our ambition is to become zero net carbon emissions for the company. So this is not one site. This is a start. This is a motivation for us as it's a huge achievement. And there is already a pipeline of projects ahead of us to take us where we want to go.
0: Does it apply that um, what happens in, in a site like this, does that provide motivation for other sites, even though they might be completely different sites, does that provide a lot of motivation across the company for other staff members in different facilities to undergo the same journey?
1: Absolutely. And uh, everywhere you see, I mean, of course, the technologies differ, the usage of water may be different, but then that's how we innovate. And that's why we have to bring new solutions to the table and if one side does it it's not only a motivation it's also like uh, if i may say a competition you know somebody else also wants to do it and another site wants to do it so they learn from each other also they invent Uh, we invent it's a continuous invention to be able to cater to all the different technologies that we have in our manufacturing setup and to be able to uh, provide those solutions for all plants to reach that and uh, so yes truly it becomes a hugely motivating factor now
0: we hear about a new plastic initiative, Plast IQ, from the packaging company Pacor. It's designed to show that plastic is necessary and should be part of the solution going forward. To tell us about the new campaign is Pacor CEO Andreas Schutter. So could you tell me a little bit about Plast IQ?
2: It's about intelligence and knowledge about the material. It's also describing a future, how we can bring knowledge and intelligence into our material. Uh, I mean, we have uh, also a campaign called Talking Waste to allow giving plastic an identity, a digital identity. So that's where the combination is coming from. That We have on one side our material, the plastic material, uh, and on the other side we have digital solutions. And to combine this in order to allow for digital identification of our material with certain technology which we have developed and where we are very proud of. If we take this holistically, we say, okay, we, we, we want to, to fight the myth, the myth that uh, plastic is evil. And uh, for that reason, we embedded this campaign into different aspects of our company strategy.
0: And it's just launched, so is it aimed at the general public or is it aimed at other businesses? (laughs)
2: Yeah, hopefully sooner or later it will be picked up by everyone. For the communication purposes, we have uh, decided to basically communicate this via our social media channels at first. I mean, the whole campaign will last for about 10 weeks in total. There's a sequence of different messages being published week after week or every second week. This will last until the beginning of September. In September, there's a fair in Germany, the Fachpark fair. So until then, all of the individual sequences will be published, will be available. And of course, we are expecting to catch attraction. And the first bus is really using social media channels. At the very end, I have to face the reality. We are a small company. Even though we have increased our public awareness, number of followers have increased tremendously over the last months. Thanks to Sonia and her team, she is doing quite excellent work. And we will hope that it will spread out. And then, of course, with the next steps to follow in the future, when we really present also our digital solutions to the market, then, um, of course, we will always come back and pick up the content of this scant campaign.
0: And is there a specific website that all of this is directed towards? Yeah, uh, Today, it's, it's a one specific, technically speaking,
2: a landing page. So the landing page is www.plast.iq.vision. It will be at a certain point of time will be uh, moved to our specific uh, web page.
0: And what kind of material does the Plast IQ website or web landing page have on it? We will make people aware
2: about uh, what are the unknown uses and unexpected benefits of plastic. Plastic is in everybody's life. And it's very popular to bash on the use of plastic, especially because we see it in the forests, we see it in uh, the oceans. But why do we see it? Because people have a bad behavior. People throw things away. They think that there are better alternative materials available. But what are the consequences about moving to alternative materials and using alternative materials nobody talks about? Everybody believes in paper is the future. And our position is it's not either or, it's both. It's using the appropriate material for a specific problem, for whether it's a packaging problem, whether it's a problem in the automotive industry, whether it's a problem for clothing. I mean, everybody likes to have very skinny jeans, to wear skinny jeans, but there's lots of plastic in that clothes these days. Hardly anybody knows, and those who know, they don't care. And everything is focused around and centered around bashing on plastic consumption in packaging, in food packaging specifically. And for sure, single-use products can also be recycled. And for sure, plastic... Waste shall not be exported. We are strictly against the export of plastic waste. The consumers, the, the let's say the society which is responsible for creating the waste, they also have the obligation to take care about uh, the waste. And um, that is what we specifically are also missing from our politicians: that they do not take a holistic approach. Instead of encouraging to introduce solutions and also encourage for solutions which are technically available to recycle the material, to sort it specifically, to recycle it, they just want to ban. It's very popular to ban something, but the problem still exists. The problem that the society still has a bad behavior in throwing away waste, whether it's plastic waste or whether it's paper waste afterwards. Yeah, and with paper waste, what is happening? For the production of paper, has anybody thought about the amount of water, the amount of land required? I mean, everybody is against deforestation. Everybody is going on the streets, uh, demonstrating, fighting the reduction of forests in the Amazon uh, area. But where shall all the paper, the pulp, come from in Scandinavia? I mean, it has to be fast-growing material, and the fast-growing material is only available in tropical, subtropical uh, forest areas. So, it's a dilemma in itself. And then you need to transport this, et cetera, et cetera. So, we have conducted an amount of life cycle analysis, comparative life cycle analysis. With this campaign, we want to combine two things. First of all, to really not hide the problems. Let's talk about the problems. And then let's talk about the solutions at the next step and how we can combine this to the benefit of the society, to the benefit of the users. One other example is, specifically in Germany, there's a belief, nearly a faith, in uh, multi-way solutions for beverage bottles. But who has an interest in multi-way solutions? Only local breweries, which have a radius, a circle, to distribute uh, ideally their their beers in a radius of 200 kilometers. I mean, it's uh, scientifically proven and undisputed since decades now that in short-distance distribution, it may be okay to use multi-way material solutions, but if you transport over 500 kilometers, 1,000 kilometers, why do you want to return everything instead of recycle the material at the place of the consumption or close to the place of the consumption in that area? There are sufficient waste collection schemes available. This combined all together, that's the purpose of our communication strategy with plus IQ. This is one pillar, one specific pillar on this, where we, in a short sequence over a short period of time, relatively short period of time, about 10 weeks in total, we will uh, regularly provide additional information and then we will, after that, that specific campaign will come to an end and it will migrate into other communication Campaigns which we are going to launch afterwards. But not only communication campaigns. it will also result in solutions. It will be supported by specific solutions, product solutions, with which we want to encourage the
0: possibility to really recycle the material in a closed-loop way. There are obviously a lot of other packaging companies. Is there a, a body that deals with all of this, or is there a unified voice on plastic that can get across to the public so that there aren't lots of individual companies doing different things?
2: Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. And I have to admit that our associations are not very successful and regularly failing basically to form a unified voice. And uh, frankly speaking, is this industry specific? I would say no. I'm now more than 30 years in professional business, worked in different industries, whether it's a I had a long period in in the aluminum industry, I had a certain period in professional lighting, in pharmaceutical medical devices, pharmaceutical primary packaging and medical devices, now in the food packaging industry. And I observed always the same. The associations have to represent different sub-industries, and they all have their specific interest. And um, for that reason, it it will always be difficult to do something specific. We as Paco, we think that we are among the top leading European uh, companies, specifically when it comes to rigid food plastic packaging. We uh, assume responsibility. We don't wait. We don't want to wait until others will join us. We think it's not five before 12. We agree. It's uh, to a certain extent, it's already noon, high noon. And uh, for that reason, we took the initiative and uh, went out there. Basically, in order to encourage others also to join in, to participate, to to also take advantage, whether it's direct competitors of ours, to participate and to take up on the same messages into the Internet community, into the professional business community.
0: How do you think that we've got to this point? Because at the beginning, you mentioning about how when you walk in the forest or you walk down the street, you see all kinds of different Litter, whether it's plastic or paper or many different kinds. How, Glass, how, yeah. how, how do you think that plastic has become the, the evil one?
2: I mentioned my more than 30 years of uh, professional experience. And uh, if I look back retrospectively, I, I, what I see is every five years in German we say, es wird eine neue Sau durchs Dorf getrieben, which means every five years a new pig is being hunted through the village. And um, now it's time for plastics. Now it's time for plastic. not because there are not any, any other things to complain about. Very often, this situation reminds me again about who is the next best enemy to be identified. When I started my professional career 30 years ago, it was aluminum. In the aluminum industry, there was a big fight about aluminum cans, aluminum being accused as the cause for the Alzheimer's disease without any scientific proof, that is now gone. Now everybody likes aluminum, especially in the cars, light weighing, and I believe in hybrid solutions. A car is made of different materials. For every different material, you need to find a solution how to treat this afterwards, the end of life, what happens after the end of the life. And the same is true for plastics. And nobody ever cared about this. And we have a continuously increasing amount of packaging requirements. And plastic is an ideal candidate for this, without any doubt.
0: I think one of the big so-called solutions at the moment is everybody's talking about either bioplastic or compostable plant-based packaging from things like algae. What do you think of those potential solutions? Do you think that's realistic? I'm a typical German engineer. And as
2: a German engineer, you are interested in development, in technical solutions, in innovations to pursue those. I would not exclude anything at this moment of time. But from research to industrial scale will take decades in order to convert from one material into the other material. There are possibilities, yes, without any doubt. But whether it's it will be available in an industrial scale, then you have to say, what can be done in the meantime? And in the meantime, in a much shorter time period, we can establish systems because all the waste is currently being collected. All the waste in the majority of the European states is being pre-sorted. But it's not used to the extent as it can be, Because the sorting does not take place and the identification of the different grades in terms of plastic in the different place does not take place. But these technologies are already available, so they only need to be implemented. That is what we are saying. Let's do one step after the other. Let's pick up on those technologies which are immediately available. And at the same time, in parallel to this, let's explore alternatives. If there will be bio-based solutions, uh, plant-based solutions in the future, let's explore them. But let's also study what are the consequences on, again, land use, water consumption, transportation cost, fertilization, what amount of fertilization is required in order to grow these materials. And then let's make an assessment about this.
0: And so what, what do you think that the government role in all of this is rather than just banning things and putting taxes on everything? Yeah,
2: I'm afraid to say, I think we need a new generation of politicians politicians who have more practical experience and not uh, are just politicians by profession. The industry needs to have a fair chance. And uh, unfortunately, to see industrial development as an opportunity for the future is something where everybody wants to talk about or is talking about. But when it comes to the implementation, we only talk about the risks and possible consequences. We always talk about the risk. We, we put the risk in the center of everything. We need to have a risk-balanced approach where we talk about the opportunities and the risks, the chances and the risk in, in a balanced way. And complaining about the missing courage of the politicians to really uh, explain the people openly about the consequences of their thinking. If the majority of the people then say, okay, we accept the consequences, fine. But that is not what's going to happen taxes that is something which is being discussed uh, heavily if the amount which is being collected or which could be collected would be used specifically to support or to subsidize the new innovations on solving the problem that would be a different story we are not against the deposit system because the deposit system there the consumer pays and gets something in return when he brings back the plastic bottle like for example or plastic packaging a deposit system or for for yogurt cup why not that is very specific this money stream can be tracked and traced
0: when it comes to solutions then um we have here and every everyone has a different system but here in scotland we have different recycling streams some of it works so some plastic you can't put into the plastic recycling some you have to take to back to the stores Some doesn't recycle at all. How how do we get to a point where not only is there more recycling, but that people are more aware of what to do? That's where I want
2: to come back to our concept of uh, talking waste. Really to allow the consumer, the end user, to easily understand what kind of material he holds in his hands, what's the value of the material, and to provide information how to sort it, pre-sort it, how to dispose it properly. And also during the during the separation process afterwards in the specialized uh, waste management companies to allow also their automatic identification because volumes, masses of tons of products, different kind of products are being sorted. There is already today technology identification technology available, whether by cameras, whether by eddy currents, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in order to separate the various materials. And then you have a second, third, or fourth separation just for plastic material, whether it's a PET, whether it's a PP product. And this is where we only have to use existing only in quotation marks use existing technology to combine it with the material in order to secure the proper sorting however everything starts at the beginning with the consumer to allow him to really get knowledge about the material and that is where we have developed our concept of uh, talking waste we are now working on a a pilot project and an industrial scale we hope to have this completed until the first uh, half of 2022 you now say it's it's a long time still more than a year until that period yes that's right but here we are again working with um, public institutions and, and unfortunately it takes a long time yes we also are working on developing certain apps which can be used, downloaded uh, in the internet by the consumers in order to allow for the identification. And we are promoting this among others. This as one concept, whether it will be picked up, we are open to share that technology to make it available for competition. I believe in standardization. Uh, I don't believe in a Paco-specific concept and we would be more than happy if others join in.
0: All right, well, I wish you the best of luck with it. And it's good that somebody's actually addressing this.
2: Yeah, someone has to take the lead. And uh, just complaining, I mean, you, we either have a choice of complaining and doing nothing or to take the initiative and take the lead and uh, going a step forward. And part of this is also not hiding the problems. Because we are describing the problem, we are also mirroring the cause of the problem back to the consumer. What is his part? What is our part as a producer? But let's talk about the chances. Let's talk about the chances of our material and the benefits. Let's not talk about that we want to wrap everything in plastic or that we want to pack everything in plastic. I truly believe in hybrid solutions. Every problem, every challenge has a technical solution, a different one, not necessarily a uniform one.
0: Now it's over to Berlin, where we talked about precision fermentation company Formo. The company and the University of Bath have co-published the first large-scale study of consumer acceptance for animal-free dairy products. Oscar Zollman-Thomas, who is Formo's lead researcher, can tell us more. Okay, so I guess to start, I wonder if you could tell me what Formo is?
3: Yeah, happily. So Formo is, we like to call ourselves the future dairy from Berlin. We're basically a company that's looking to create delicious traditional dairy products, but made without any animals involved. And we do that through a technology called precision fermentation, which has been around for a long time and is used in more products than you'd probably imagine, including cheese already. But we are now using that same technology to make the entire product. So it's delicious hedonistic cheese, but no animals involved.
0: And so would the origin of this originally be from an animal product? I'm just wondering about whether it's something that would be acceptable for vegans?
3: Yeah, so basically when any organism is making proteins, what's actually happening is it's reading off a stretch of DNA, which is basically just a kind of an order of letters, It's you may remember it from biology class, it's called that ACTG, which are called nucleotides. Um, but basically it's just an order of letters and so you don't actually need to take that order of letters from anywhere as long as you know what that order of letters is you can make it yourself we know what the order of letters is that codes for the proteins in milk and so we just basically write down that letter that that section of dna and then that's what goes into the microorganism so no animals involved at all
0: And what would the benefits of the methods of precision fermentation that you're talking about, what would the benefits of that be for consumers and also for the producers of the end product and, of course, the planet as well?
3: If you think about a cow as a factory for making milk, it's actually really not a very efficient way of producing milk. It's got to do all sorts of other things. It's got to breathe and roam and build its bones and digest things or whatever. But So actually, if you could get an organism that's not kind of burden by doing any of those other things it's going to be a way more efficient process so kind of just in an economic sense whilst it's not the case right now in the pretty near future it will be the case that it's a way more efficient way of actually producing those proteins so that's one side of it just in terms of the economics and then obviously with that comes the carbon savings because cows, as we know, spend a lot of time farting and producing CO2 and whatnot, which is massively reduced when you're using microorganisms. So there's kind of early life cycle assessments suggest that it's kind of between 85 to 97 percent more efficient in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and uh, it's 98 percent less water to produce milk proteins using precision fermentation and 91 percent less land usage as well so kind of massive environmental savings and then for people that do have concerns about industrial animal agriculture then it's completely animal free the entire process
0: is it something that you can produce all range of dairy products From you could do yogurts as as well as cheese.
3: Yeah, exactly. We're we're focusing on cheese initially because, kind of, anecdotally and kind of having done a bit of consumer research, cheese is one of the main sticking points for people that are looking to reduce animal product consumption because vegan cheeses today just really aren't up to the job in terms of taste and functionality. So that's what we're focusing on initially. But we're producing milk proteins that are found in milks yogurts and cheeses so there's a whole range of possibilities that we'll be looking at into the future but it's going to be probably mozzarella and ricotta initially uh, other cheeses we'll be focusing on
0: the dairy versions there are just literally thousands of cheeses would you be able to replicate the parmesan style and the gouda and camembert and blue cheeses like that whole range of cheese
3: Yeah, that would one day be possible in terms of the kind of like the culture and the history surrounding all of those cheeses. That's the thing that's going to be more tricky to get right, we're imagining. But we've got all the ingredients right there. But then we just need the kind of the time and the expertise and the people that are really close to the flavors and the history of all those products to make them. But everything will be possible. Like you
0: said, it's the taste I think that people are most concerned about is that there are and not that they're all horrible but there are some twice the price and then do you risk it in the knowledge that it might not be that great
3: exactly yeah we've done a lot of taste testings here where every time we feel more and more confident that we (laughs) will be making a product that can really deliver a lot of uh, satisfaction to a lot of people
0: and then i guess the next question on that is cost because obviously if you're looking to move to a plant-based diet for something like a ricotta if it's twice the price will people pay for it i mean how do you address the price and scale issues
3: yeah so we've just kind of published this initial research that was just looking at the kind of willingness to try and willingness to buy and we're working currently on another piece of research that will examine a little bit more about the price elasticities that people are facing and so i mean our aim is to be a mass market product one day and it will be the case that initially it's going to be more expensive just because that's the nature of producing these sorts of things but it will be coming down sharply over time and to be honest personally i'm imagining that the extremely high-end parmesans and kind of high culture cheeses will be around forever basically and will be more mass market as the ambition
0: and will you be producing the actual cheese or just the ingredients for a company to then turn that into cheese?
3: So we're actually looking to produce the cheeses ourselves, really. I think there's a lot of consumer education that needs to happen. There's, we need to be kind of really transparent and honest about this new technology that's coming out. So that feels like a really massive job. And we want to be as close to that as possible. We really want to be up close with consumers. So that's what we'll be looking to do. But into the future, interested in all sorts of partnerships with all sorts of people.
0: And speaking of partnerships you've been collaborating with the university of depending on whether you're from the north or the south bath or bath um, yes how did that yeah. come about?
3: so for me that's the university of bath yeah we've just published a kind of the first piece of research into consumer acceptance of precision fermentation derived dairy cheese and we published that with chris bryant of the university of bath who's a really fantastic researcher who's looked at cultivated meat as well And that partnership came about, I think because Chris had given a talk at ProVeg and I think Rafa, the founder of our company, connected with him there. And so from there, that's where that partnership began. And what did the study consist of that you were doing? So the study consisted of giving people a kind of a very short, about 150 word introduction into what precision fermentation actually is and what a product made using those techniques would be like and the advantages of it basically and it was obvious to us that we needed to be incredibly transparent and honest with what that was wouldn't make any sense to do the research without that really so it was a 150 word introduction into precision fermentation and then some questions that gauged demographics attitudinal things dietary data and then was also asking them would you be interested in trying a product made using this technology would you be interested in buying a product made using this technology would you be interested in regularly buying it and then that was how the survey ran.
0: And what did you find from the results?
3: So we found some really promising things. Overall, it was 78.8% of people stated that they'd be probably or definitely likely to try a product made through precision fermentation. And just over 70% were saying that they would probably or definitely buy a product made through precision fermentation. So it was five countries we surveyed and about 5,000 people in total. So we looked at Brazil, Germany, India, the UK and the USA. So it's a pretty broad spread of nations there.
0: Were there any regional variations in the data?
3: There were some regional variations in the data. Quite interestingly we saw that people in India and Brazil were more likely to be willing to try and buy the products and it was a survey that was conducted online and there's a question about whether the people who have access to the internet in Brazil and India are the same as people who don't have access to the internet in Brazil and India and my suspicion is that that's not quite the case so that was what we were initially seeing and then quite interestingly as well in the USA it was the case that the strength of feeling was the strongest at either end of the spectrum as well which I also found interesting so that it was in in the USA that we saw the most people saying they definitely wouldn't try it but it was also the case that we saw most people in the USA of Germany the USA and the UK saying that they definitely would buy it as well so it was slightly more polarised
0: So in the press release that came out, there was a comment about dairy cheese lovers being mainly the people that are looking for the change. I wonder if you could kind of elaborate on that a bit.
3: One of the sections of of our research was something kind of, it's called regression analysis, where you can basically spot what characteristics about a person were the strongest predictors of a certain thing, in our case, willingness to try or buy precision fermentation derived dairy. And the strongest predictor that we saw across all of them, and that's including veganism, flexitarianism, politics, left, right, city, countryside, the strongest predictor we saw for people that were interested in buying these products was the amount of cheese that they're currently eating right now, which was a really, really, really interesting finding for us and sort of shows that there was a little question, well, are we making a product for vegans here? That wasn't really how we thought, but That finding makes it abundantly obvious that the people that are most excited about these products are people that love cheese right now. So we're making a product for cheese lovers and for maybe people that are recognising some of the environmental costs of eating loads and loads of dairy or maybe are starting to think about the ethical sides of industrial animal agriculture. And they're looking to sort of diversify their dairy intake a little bit.
0: So it's more a case of a lot of people saying, well, I'd make the switch right now if only the products were equivalent.
3: Yeah, exactly. And so that means we've got to put that delicious product in front of them and the proof is going to be in the pudding when they have that first bite of precision fermentation derived cheese rather than when they're sitting down to do a survey, of course. But just the fact that there's so many people willing to take that first bite is really, really promising for us.
0: So where do you go from here? I mean, when should we expect to see results of this in terms of products on shelves?
3: So it depends which shelves you're talking about exactly because there's naturally different regulations in different parts of the world for this type of technology and in particular the EU is very restrictive in terms of creating these types of products. There's something called novel food regulation which means that anything that hasn't been traditionally used in the EU has to go through a very rigorous testing process whereas in other parts of the world particularly Singapore governments are a lot more open to trying out these new technologies for food production really so in some part of the world I think we'll be selling products in 2023 but it remains to be seen kind of what the progress is in the EU and indeed the UK to be honest because I there's been a conversation there about diverging from EU standards and what sort of vision the UK wants to set out in terms of its relationship with these types of technologies so that's one that I'm definitely keeping my eye on.
0: Yeah, and then, then you get into the terminology debate as well as to what you can call it and how you can market it and all of those things
3: yes yeah indeed and that's something that we're doing a lot of thinking about at the moment there's sort of a little bit of center of gravity behind the term animal free which i think explains part of what's going on but we really need to communicate to people that this is definitely not the vegan cheese that you've tried before and it is a really new exciting technology and it is something to be excited about so we sort of need to find the right term for it but in terms of actually the ingredients we are going to be making milk proteins that are nature identical to what you would find in milk so particularly if you've got a milk allergy not necessarily lactose but that doesn't need to go on our products but if you've got a, a milk protein allergy then you do need to know about the fact that you're going to be allergic to this as well because it is identical to milk proteins so all sorts of interesting stuff to chew through with regulators in the near future
0: And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at Stone X.
4: This week saw uh, European uh, dairy butter futures uh, sell off a little bit more and skim milk powder remain uh, relatively stable. We're starting to see, I guess, uh, lack of demand from food services to the expected levels that uh, was anticipated coming through weighing on stocks. So we had quarter 3 butter down around 35 euros to 3915. We had a quarter 4 butter down around 45 euros on the week trading around the 3900 level and then we had quarter 1 of uh, next year butter off around 20 euros on the week to the 3930 level. Skimmel powder on the other hand was was more stable. Okay, quarter 3 was off a little bit down around 25 euros on the, on the week to 2465 level. But quarter four and quarter one of next year were at more or less the same levels as last week. Quarter four trading around twenty-four seventy-five and quarter one trading around twenty-four ninety-five. Way was pretty flat on the week also.
0: Great. Thank you, Liam. We will hear from you again next week. Stone X provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC Hedging Tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that wraps up another podcast. Next week we hope to have interviews with Change Foods, Tate and Lyle, and I'm not sure about the third yet. I'm also not sure about the weekend plans. Every week I decide where to go, and every week the forecast changes on Friday, so I have to change it. Maybe I should just be spontaneous for a change. With crowds being allowed back at sporting events again and soccer having already resumed in Scotland, it's a bit of a dilemma now as to whether to go to games again. I think people have been so desperate for some kind of normal, so maybe I'll start again when we have a rainy Saturday. And living in Scotland, that won't be too far away. Anyway, I hope wherever in the world you are, you'll have a great week. Stay safe, take care, and, as always, thanks for listening.